0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of How We Made It in E-Commerce. Our guest today is David Smith, the CEO of Cotopaxi. Cotopaxi markets a line of premium outdoor gear and is certified as a B Corp. That means they are a company that aims to have social impact beyond just making money. The company was the subject of a Harvard Business School case study, and Davis will talk a little bit more about that. Prior to founding Cotopaxi, Davis founded two other companies, Baby.com Brazil and PoolTable.com, the largest retailer of pool tables in the U.S. You're a serial entrepreneur. How did you go from selling pool tables to selling baby products in Brazil and now to selling outdoor gear in the U.S.? They all seem so different. So what was the rationale for going into each
1: yeah, they are pretty random. I, I will say the common thread, maybe between all of them, I mean, there's a few common threads, I suppose, but one of them is e commerce. And that's something that I've been involved with for close to 20 years now. So, yeah, but I mean, I guess the way that I kind of got to these different places was uh, I remember in undergrad, I, I studied international studies uh, and did a, a minor in Latin American studies. I, my passion was really around the world. And, uh, you know, I'd spent a lot of time you know, living internationally, and my family moved to the developing world when I was a child. So it was the world I knew. What kind of surprised me was I started to have an interest in business. And so I I kind of last minute added a a second minor, and I did a minor in, in business management. And one of the classes that I took was this entrepreneurship lecture series where it was just like a one credit hour class, very simple, but it was you'd show up once a week, and you just have a one-hour lecture of an entrepreneur talking about their story. And it was crazy to me. Like, I just loved hearing these amazing stories that these entrepreneurs had of starting a business when they were young or when they had no experience in something or maybe no money. And just finding a way to kind of be scrappy and make the business happen. And I remember one of the entrepreneurs, a student, he had built, if I remember correctly, he built like a security company alarm system sales for homes, residential. And uh, one of the students said, Hey, so are, are you really, are you really passionate about alarm sales? Like how do you know, is that something you've been really passionate about? He's like, No, I'm not passionate about alarm systems. But what I am passionate about is my own business. And it doesn't matter what I sell, because it's mine, because I created it because it was something that I had the idea for and built it from the ground up. I'm so passionate about it. And that's when I kind of realized, you know what, like, you don't necessarily have to to build a business and something that you are super passionate about. Now, I say that, you know, building now a company that I'm very, very passionate about, the space I'm in, the good that we do. And I will say there is a difference. I, I feel so engaged with what I'm doing now because of those passions. But I was pretty passionate about my last two businesses, even though they really weren't thinking I wasn't passionate about pool tables. I wasn't necessarily passionate about baby diapers, but they were great
0: experiences for me. Interesting background. Hold that thought. We may return at the end. But in the meantime, let's move on and explore the whole uh, B Corp aspect. Like Tom's Shoes and Patagonia, you have a social mission. You give away 1% of your revenue to causes that improve the human condition. So a couple of questions around that. Does it help attract customers? Just having them know that you, you have a social mission beyond just making money? And then the other part to that is: Do you not care whether it helps you get more customers? You're going to do good anyway because you believe in it. And then, what do your investors think about this? And if you went public and you had, you know, public shareholders, would you still be the type of business that gives away one percent of revenue?
1: Yeah, really nice question. So uh, I've known my whole life that I wanted to use my life to help other people. One of my first memories as a child was was seeing children that were my age. Again, my family was living in the developing world, and I saw children my age that were completely naked on the sides of the street. And, you know, those kind of experiences when you're that age, they really shape you. And what I started to realize from that very young age was that I was very lucky. I had done nothing to deserve the life that I had. I didn't grow up with any kind of wealth. My family didn't have a lot, actually. But... You know, when we moved back to the United States, I was on discounted lunches through the school. So, you know, my family didn't have a lot, but I I had opportunities that I knew these other people would never have. And it had nothing to do with how smart they were, how driven or hardworking they were. It was only because of where I was born. And so I've always felt a deep responsibility to find a way to help others. And the reason I kind of pursued this path of entrepreneurship was uh, when I was in college, I had a mentor, uh, a philanthropist who had been a successful entrepreneur. I tried to convince him to let me go work for him. I wanted to help him expand his program that he had in the Philippines, pulling people out of poverty to Latin America, where I'd grown up. And, you know, he instead convinced me that if I wanted to make a difference in the world, that I should be an entrepreneur. And that through that experience, I'd be able to go have my own way of making a difference in the world. And so... That's why I went down the path of entrepreneurship in the first place. I'd never considered being an entrepreneur throughout college. It was never something I was really thinking about until the very, very end. You know, so when I decided to start Cotabaxi, before I even knew what we would sell or what the name of the company was or anything, I knew that I was going to go build a social enterprise, a business that was dedicated to alleviating global poverty. You know, I guess the answer to your question is, yeah, I would do it no matter what, but I also believe that doing good is good for business. I believe that if you do it right, and you do it authentically, and you're, you're truly committed to this, and th- these are the values that you build your entire culture and business around, that people will see the authenticity, and they're going to connect with that brand or that business. And who doesn't want to support a business or a brand that's aligned with their values? So yeah, we do have customers that, that choose to, to buy product from our business instead of somewhere else because of the causes that we support because of the, of the values that we have. We do have people that come back and purchase more frequently than they maybe would otherwise because of that. We have employees that choose to work for us because they believe in our mission. And so um, there are benefits to this. And I think that's great because frankly, we need to change capitalism. Capitalism needs to change. It needs to evolve. It needs to be better than it has been in the past. And um, I think the way to make that happen is to actually create incentives for businesses to do the right thing. I think we're a brand and a business that can kind of show everyone this does work. You don't have to choose between doing good and doing well. You can do both simultaneously.
0: Interesting thoughts. I mentioned the the Harvard Business School did a case study on your company. What did they conclude?
1: Yeah. um, So it was interesting. Um, The case study was done a number of years ago. We're six years old and it was done about four years ago. So it was very, very early in the life of our business. To be honest, I was kind of surprised that they had even had interest in what we were doing because we were just so small still. But again, I think the mission really spoke to them how we were trying to build a business around experiences and around giving back and doing good and building around values. And so, you know, in the case study, we talk a little bit about how we built this brand differently. Instead of just launching, uh, you know, we're a digitally native brand, but instead of just launching the website and trying to sell online, we created an offline experience a 24 hour adventure race this this event called the questable the way that we we did this is we went on on craigslist we bought two llamas and we went around college campuses around utah where we were living where we were launching this business you know everyone started gathering around the llamas on these campuses saying wait why are the cam- why are the llamas here on campus and you know they take selfies and we we give them a flyer and tell them about this 24-hour adventure race, this Questival. We ended up with thousands of people that showed up at this very first event. So the day that we turned on our website, we had thousands of people gathered around. They were completing challenges of giving service in the community, adventuring in the outdoors, hiking, camping, and every person that did the event got one of our backpacks as part of the registration. And then they were taking pictures. We had 30,000 social media posts of people uh, in 24 hours of of our launch of people using our gear, living the brand values. And so the case study really kind of focused on this idea of of building a a digital brand, but using an offline experience to build the brand, and then at the same time, having this deep-rooted social mission attached to the brand. And so it was a fun case study. And frankly, I mean, I'd love, we should do a follow-on. I mean, we have so much more to talk about now than we did then.
0: Interesting. So let's delve a little more into, you know, you're a digitally native brand, but you also have an offline presence. And now according to the Wall Street Journal, you're launching some physical stores. But at the same time, so many physical retailers are closing down. The Macy's, the JCPenney's, the Circuit Cities. And so maybe talk about why you're doing this as a digitally native brand. And then in general, what are the conditions under which physical stores are viable? Is it selling a proprietary product like you and Casper and Warby Parker versus general merchandise? Or what is it in, in this age as we transition from offline to e-commerce that makes physical location still viable?
1: Yeah. So the reason that I believe in this is because I've actually I've had experience doing it. So in 2004, uh, 16 years ago, I started building PoolTables.com, which you mentioned earlier. We were a digitally native brand. We started by selling online only. And then eventually we opened up retail stores around the country. And what we saw was that anywhere that we opened up a a physical retail store, e-commerce sales boomed. People, they they were exposed to the brand. Customer acquisition costs online became cheaper in those markets. People felt more confident that if they bought the product and they weren't happy with it, they could always go into the store to get help. You know, that was my first experience of creating a, a digitally native brand with physical retail attached to it, I went into business school with that experience, and it was a very valuable experience that I've leaned on heavily. I actually went to business school with the the founders of Warby Parker, and so I was able to to get to know them. But you know, when they were very in the very first ideation phases of that business, and you know, we become close friends. I invested in Warby Parker, and in, in their seed round. They invested in my last business and in in Cotopaxi as well. It's been really fun to watch their success, and I'm learning a lot from watching the way that they've built their brand. And now they have over 100 retail stores. Casper, Phil Krim, the founder, has done a great job as well in building a digitally native brand and then figuring out how to add physical retail. Same with Allbirds, the shoe company, uh, which is also a classmate in business school. And so we're seeing these great examples of, of digital brands that are using physical retail. But the experience of physical retail is very different right, than what's existed previously. The model before was, hey, we're going to have a huge department store, we're going to have tens of thousands of square feet of space, and we're going to sell everything. They're frankly selling the same thing that everyone else is selling. That's a challenge. If you're basically a vending machine where you're just selling the same brands that everyone else is selling, it's very hard to have a competitive advantage. And so what these digitally native brands do, like Casper and Warby Parker and Cotopaxi and Allbirds, you know, we go build a brand and a proprietary product that no one else is selling. And we have a value proposition that's different from anyone else. And the only way to get that is to buy directly from us, right? So going to creating a small retail store, you know, it might be 1,500 square feet or 2,000 square feet or 1,000 square feet. They're very small. They're very nimble. Um, they can be profitable. They don't t- cost a ton of money to go build out and, and to, to go open up a bunch of stores. You know, this is the model that seems to be working today. And Of course, now uh, with COVID, there's some new challenges, right? But uh, eventually, I believe retail will come back.
0: That's very interesting to know. So it's not just basically all physical stores are not created equal. You're thriving because it's it's a much smaller store selling just your brand, and therefore you don't have huge overheads. Do you care about location? Like, do you try and locate in less expensive places the way IKEA does, or because you're small, you can have prime locations at the biggest malls.
1: Yeah, we definitely, uh, you know, location, 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 right? It's the secret of retail. And we absolutely care a lot about being in great locations where people are at. I guess, you know, some people might say, well, I don't understand what's different about what you're doing versus what's always been done. But there's always been brands that have had their own retail stores. The advantage and what's new about what you're seeing today is these digital brands, they have a wealth of data. So before, let's say 20 years ago, You'd see a brand that would open up stores all around the country. They're doing their best job to guess uh, where people where their customers are. The interesting thing about a digital brand is that you have very deep data on understanding who your customer is, you know what their interests are, where they live, what zip codes they're in, and you can look at that across the entire country or globally. It helps you make better decisions. like we can look at our customers and say, "Wow, you know our number one market is New York City, our number two market is is San Francisco, our number three market is Seattle, and within Seattle, we know that within this pocket, we have like a very dense uh, group of customers that are that are evangelizing the brand, that are talking about us, that are buying online, um, you know, that have done the questable. Every time we go, we do questables and we see where people are coming from, and so for us, it was like, wow, we have all the data pointing to this location as a great place to go, and then um, you know we're able to go into a market, and so it's it's a little more scientific than maybe what had been done in the past.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I I didn't appreciate the data aspects. Like you can pinpoint with surgical precision. These are where the orders are coming from. So we should locate a store here. But browse your website a little, look at your products. They seem pretty expensive. And so given your use of your heavy use of recycled materials, you know, I thought they should be more affordable. Why are those jackets so expensive? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, we made a decision when we built the brand, you know, you have to position yourself somewhere, right? It's like, right. Want to make premium products, and do we want to invest in, in high quality materials and use the best factories that are a little more expensive because they pay their employees fairly? Like if there's a, a sewer in the factory that's expecting a baby, there's programs to support that. They're being paid living wages and they have opportunities to grow. Or if it's a fair trade factory, which a number of our factories are, like there's additional costs there. And so what you do when you identify some of those things is like your product is going to be more expensive, right? And so you know we chose to build a premium brand. We're actually maybe priced slightly lower than like a Patagonia, but pretty on par with with most of these premium brands that you'll see. Definitely less expensive than in like an ArcTeryx, which is at the, maybe the top of the market. But yeah, it's it's not cheap when you when you do things right. You know, when you're thinking about your, you know, your environmental and carbon footprint, you know, we offset, our, we do a lot of carbon offsetting. We we invest a lot in our factories and in the teams there and uh, make sure that people are, are you know, are, have a, a safe, and a great place to work. And then a lot of times materials, like even using recycled materials, also might seem like, oh, that should be cheaper. But a lot of times it's actually not. So yeah, the, we feel like there's a lot of value in, in what we create and uh, in the products that we sell. And uh, you know it's up to customers. You know Some customers might say, wow, I'm like kind of young. I'm in high school, or maybe I'm just starting college. I'm going to have to save up to buy that backpack or that, you know, that adventure travel bag or, or that jacket Um, And some might say, hey, you know, I'm just going to go on Amazon. I'm going to find something a little bit cheaper, maybe a brand that no one really knows, but that that does the job. And we totally understand that as well. But, you know, our customers are people that that feel passionate about our values, that feel passionate about having a great product that was made well and that was uh, done in the right way.
0: I see. Interesting points you mentioned. So would you say that to be a socially conscious brand, a B Corp that gives back, that doesn't use slave labor, that engages in fair trade and pays farmers well, would you say that you have to build a premium brand and command premium prices to do that kind of thing? I look at Patagonia Tom's Shoes. Their products are also pretty expensive. So if I want to create a product for the masses, is it not possible to be a social impact company as well?
1: I don't think you have to be a premium brand. I can think of a number of great examples of brands that are offering products at very fair prices. For example, Warby Parker, right? So I'm wearing a pair of Warby Parkers now. These are $95. You know, one of the reasons Neil and Dave started Warby Parker was one of them had this experience where they, they realize, like, I'm paying as much for my glasses as I, as I pay for an iPhone. Like, there's not that much technology in these glasses compared to an iPhone. Why are glasses so expensive? And they went and disrupted, you know, the, the traditional supply chain and sold direct to consumer. And so all of a sudden, their their product is a lot less expensive than what you'd pay somewhere else. Now, at the same time, you can get cheaper glasses. You can go online and find a number of places that are selling thirty-five dollar glasses. And so. You know, there's a balance. I think a lot of times, if you want to, if you want to do things right, if you want to have an ethical supply chain, if you want to be giving back as as well, like we've given away to date, we've given away a hundred percent of our profits uh, and more. You know, if you want to do those things, it's hard to do that if you're just if you're trying to sell things at the very cheapest you know way possible.
0: I see. Let's talk more about the business. How many customers do you have today? How often do they buy? We're about six years old,
1: uh, and I don't know the exact numbers, but we you know we've had over a million transactions, over a million customers at this point. And, you know, what we do see is that, you know, repeat rates in a, in a business like ours are maybe slightly better than normal, again, because of people feel a connection to the brand. You know, when we first started, that, that wasn't the case just because we started so small. It was like we had five backpacks. You know, if you bought one of the backpacks, you didn't necessarily need to buy another backpack. But as the business has grown and we offer different products, you know, there's different offerings that allow people to come back and repeat purchase.
0: That's pretty impressive. A million customers, you know, besides Google and Facebook, what would you say are your main ways of acquiring customers? It's a question our audience is very interested in. So if you can share, that would be
1: great. Instagram and Facebook are two of our biggest drivers of revenue. Email is obviously uh, another very productive you know, way for us to, to drive traffic to our website. Of course, that's mostly through repeat purchasing. You know, Traditional display ads, banner ads and, and other display that drives people to the site. If they've been to our site, you know, we'll, we'll retarget them. So they'll see ads to the site that will encourage them to come back and check us out. And then uh, I, you know, I'd say most importantly, uh, word of mouth. Uh, when you build a great brand that people are excited about, you, your customers evangelize you. And so they tell the story for you. And we, we tried to build product in a way that allows people to do that. that. That's really unique that when you see the product, you're like, wow, like that's very different. We'll use, you know, we have a, a line of bags, uh, some of our best selling products. They're all, you know, they're all right made of remnant material. Uh, this is leftover material from other brands that use our same factory. Some of the best you know, it's all the brands that you can think of in the outdoor industry. They, you know, a lot of them use the same factory. And so, Uh, The bags are very unique, very colorful. The only rule we gave the sewers is to make no bag alike. For the first time, the sewers actually get creative choice. They get to design the bags any way they feel. So when you see our product, it's definitely recognizable. So yeah, that's one of the things uh,
0: that's really unique about the brand that we built. So obviously your customers are more engaged because they share your values and they tell your story. Are you able to track their impact on customer acquisition? Like, for example, do you give your customers codes to refer friends? And then are you able to track how many new customers each customer brought and that sort of thing? Are you able to quantify the whole referral aspect? To some degree. We do have a refer
1: friend program where you can get, you know, if you're a customer and you refer a friend that buys, they get a credit and you get a credit so we can track that. You know, a lot of word of mouth is not something that you, that you can necessarily track. But one of the ways we can do that is just by seeing organic traffic to the website. You know, as we see organic traffic growing as a percentage of sales, we know that that's happening because of word of mouth, right? So um, as the brand has grown, you know, one of the things that's driven a lot of e-commerce traffic uh, organically has actually been building an an omni-channel brand. So having our product in REI stores and, you know, 600 other retailers people are starting to discover the brand at their favorite retail store. They go to REI to go buy something and they discover the brand Then they'll go to our website. And so um, that's been another way that we've been able to drive organic, unpaid traffic.
0: Interesting. How much do you invest in content, publishing content out there, telling stories about your brand? Is that something you do a lot? Not.
1: Yeah, we do that. We do that to some degree. You know, we have um, a lot of it is user generated content, right? So, Uh, It's kind of that users are generating and sharing on on social media. But we also do some of our own. We have, you know, we've had for a number of years, a a team that we've built out that that tells stories. And some of that includes, you know, someone that will go and travel to our factories and travel to our social impact partners around the world and take pictures and and write stories around the impact that we're having or about the factory itself and kind of tell the stories of maybe some of the sewers in that factory. And so, we do invest in that, but a lot of the content that we have is is user-generated as opposed to us generating it just ourselves.
0: I see. So that's definitely a, a competitive advantage because it's free for you. Yeah. And it's others saying you're good rather than you touting your own horn. So yeah. always good when that happens. What would you say are the main challenges in your business today?
1: Yeah, I think like any uh, kind of small brand that's trying to break through, a lot of it is customer awareness, like how do you make people aware of of your brand and how do you tell the story? Like there's something really deep about our brand and, and what it stands for. You know, if you order from our website, you get a handwritten thank you card that's written by a refugee. They get their very first job working with us. We created a job club where um, our team volunteers and teaches classes on how to create a, red, a resume, how to do a job interview, how to follow up after the job interview. And then we have refugees that'll that'll join to get the first job with us and they help us there's a number of different roles, but one of the most common roles is this, this card writer. They write thank you cards to every one of our customers that gets a product. And they write it in their native language since they're still learning English. And, you know, there's, there's all this depth to the brand. And, like, how do, you, how do you communicate that? How do you help people understand what you're building? And that takes time. And, frankly, it takes money, right? So that's always uh, one of the biggest challenges.
0: Yeah, so, you know, a small brand trying to break through and become a major brand. And what would you say is your long-term vision? Do you envision yourself becoming a public company? Do you see yourself selling to someone like Nike? What's the long-term vision? Because we chose
1: to raise venture capital from the beginning of the business, we created a, obviously a situation where our investors are going to expect a return on their investment at some point. So at some point, we're going to cre- need to create liquidity for them. Now, there's a number of ways to do that. You can go public. You know, you can remain private, and you know, you can take uh, like a private equity money that comes in and says, "Hey." We're willing to cash out those early investors. We believe in the business. We'll buy, you know, half the business and, and help these people get liquidity. Or there's opportunities like, you know, strategic partners, strategic acquisitions, like let like you said, Nike or VF Corp that owns the North Face and Timberland and a bunch of other brands. You know, so there's various ways to do that. The one thing I will say is that this is my life's work, and this is my My deepest passion. No matter what happens, I will be deeply involved in building this business and in the work that we do. And so, really, what I'd be looking for is—I don't know—that I have interest in going public. That's not something that really—I know a lot of it is. A lot of going public is, frankly, it's—it's about ego, right? It's about being the CEO of a public company. That really doesn't matter to me. What I really care about is the social mission. And so, I I would be looking for a partner, whether it's private equity firm, a strategic acquirer that really understands our mission and why we're doing this. And that allows us to continue to do what we're doing. One of the reasons that we incorporated as a benefit corporation from inception was we really said what we stood for from the very beginning. And we're legally bound to that. Someone couldn't come in and and, and try to take that away. The other thing is that we built the mission so deeply into the brand that if someone tried to buy us and say, hey, we're going to go try to maximize profit now. And they tried to take that away. It would destroy the brand. Right? So that, that was my exact purpose. I wanted to build this so deeply into the business and the brand that even if I got hit by a bus or something, that there's no way to, to separate those things. This business is, is a business that's going to be committed to doing good forever.
0: Interesting. Earlier, you mentioned that you've given away 100% of your profits to date. Why would you do that? I mean, you're not a charity. And then second question is, what do your investors think about
1: that? You know, the investors knew what they were getting into uh, when they invested. It was what I led with whenever I met with an investor was our social mission. And what they believe in is that in building this brand, that we will build a brand that's, that's of value and that customers are going to support the brand because of the mission. And that, that mission is deeply rooted into why this business and brand works. What we also believe is that as the business scales, you know, in the first years of the business... You don't make that much profit, right? It just, it, it takes a lot of time and money to go build a brand. And so for us, we've donated more money than we've ever made, right? We've been donating from day one of the business. We, we started making donations. And so they understood that and they've been supportive of our mission. In fact, we just had a board meeting last week and we spent uh, a chunk of the board meeting talking about the impact that we've had, the response that we've had to covid how we will provide this year hundreds of thousands of masks to refugees around the world. And so you should have seen the smiles on their faces. It's like, they're not upset that we're doing this. They're so proud to be part of building something with us that really makes a difference in the world. And they understand that, you know, over the next 5, 10, 20 years, the business is going to be creating then enough profit as we reach scale that we won't be giving away all of our money. Um, You know, at this point, we give 1% one percent of all of our sales. Plus, we commit a bunch of money towards refugee projects, our supply chain, and other work. It ends up being between four and five percent of our total revenue goes towards impact in one way or another. But as you build a business, you know you hope that you know your EBITDA might be closer to fifteen percent of revenue, or maybe even eighteen percent of revenue if you build a great business. And so, if we're at fifteen percent of revenue and we're giving away five percent, you know that that leaves some money for investors to make money and for the business to continue to. They have profits to continue their growth uh, versus just having to raise venture capital
0: and go public. So um, there's a, this model does work. Got it. Another fascinating thing you mentioned is this whole uh, questionable. You you bought two llamas and you took them around college campuses and. You generate a lot of buzz for the brand and got people engaged. And I'm always very intrigued by those type of things. I think it's an instance of what uh, Seth Godin calls the purple cow. You do something outrageous like that and, uh, you know, get people involved. But for every successful one, there are a string of failed ones. And it's very hard to engineer those type of things consistently to work. So I'm curious, how did you go about developing your concept? Did you try a bunch of different ones that failed to get the one that didn't work? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that uh, for every success you hear about in a company, they've had many, many failures, right? So, you know, throughout my my entrepreneurial journey, I've tried many things that haven't worked, uh, a few ideas that I that I dabbled in that didn't get traction. Um, and even within a, a company like Cotopaxi, we've tried plenty of things that didn't work. You know, we in the early days, we used Kickstarter and, and Indiegogo, these crowdfunding platforms to launch some product. and. We probably tried maybe a dozen different products. And, you know, we had a one that went over a million dollars. We had another one that was like $700,000 and we had a few that like we launched and within 24 hours, no, nah, within like three hours, we knew it was like fail. <laughs> like this product is not going to work. No traction, no product market fit. It was surprising because there were some times where we thought we felt so confident that what we developed, like this product would be a winner. And then sometimes it wouldn't be. And so, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of trial by error in, you know, in, these, in these startups.
0: Got it. And so in closing, I'll ask the two questions that we ask every guest. So the first is, who are two CEOs or entrepreneurs from the e-commerce age that you admire? And briefly tell us why. One of them is a, a guy named Jeremy Andrus. He's the CEO
1: of a business called Traeger. Traeger, is a, they do these barbecue smoker grills. He's just a, a brilliant entrepreneur. He's a friend. He's here in Salt Lake. He's on my board. And uh, he was an early investor in our business. And he'd previously been the CEO of Candy, the headphone company. What I love about Jeremy is uh, his humility. You know, he's built some very big businesses. He took Skullcandy public. You know, Traeger is, uh, you know, it's a billion-dollar company. I remember when he had a transaction a few years ago where he made an enormous amount of money that night, he took his kids and his wife, and they all went and volunteered at a soup kitchen that night. That's the kind of person that I admire. Um, someone that's not, It's not about the money. It's not about you know rubbing in people's faces how well you did. It's about finding ways to touch the lives of others along your way. And so uh, Jeremy's definitely one that I admire. And I would, I, I would say maybe another name. There's so many, but uh, I'm really inspired by uh, Dave Gilboa and, and Neil Blumenthal from Warby Parker they're the two CEOs that are really, for me, they showed me how you could build a a brand that was focused on giving back. And, you know, Warby Parker, that might be a little bit on the periphery of their brand, but like for every pair of glasses that they sell, they help someone in in the underdeveloped world get access to eye care and to get a pair of glasses. And they're the ones that, for me, that put benefit corporations and B Corps on the radar. And I would not have known about that had it not been for them. And so They help me think differently about
0: entrepreneurship than I had before. And
1: so they're a a real inspiration
0: to me. Great. And then what's the one piece of e-commerce advice you'd like to leave our audience with? Perhaps something you wish you'd known before you started PullTables.com or your other ventures. And throughout your journey as an entrepreneur, the one piece of advice you distill and say, take this.
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest lessons I learned was that it is critical to identify core values that you stand for and build those into every aspect of your business and your culture and your brand. Uh, Build rituals and traditions in your culture that reflect those values. Because ultimately, your culture and your brand are just two sides of the same point. You can't build a great brand without great culture and the same, you know, vice versa. So That's one of the lessons I learned. It's something I wish I would have done in my previous two businesses was build real purpose, identify real values that we stood for and build everything around that.
0: Thank you, Davis. It's been a pleasure talking to you, learning about your business and all the best. Thank you again.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jasper.
0: Thanks for having me.